Remember in chapter 8, we looked at this little horn that was pompous and that ended the sacrifice that was the abomination of desolations, Antiochus IV, this person who precedes the Antichrist in terms of a type. And at the end of this chapter 8, in verse 27, it says, I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterwards I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. So he had this vision, but he did not understand it. The people he shared it with didn't understand it. And then we did chapter 9 when he was praying for his people, and he got a different vision about how transgression is going to be ended and righteousness is going to come in and the 70 weeks prophecy. So there was two things in there that were significant. One is... Well, there's a lot of significant things, but two things directly responsive to his prayer. One is, there is going to be a command to rebuild Jerusalem. That was in chapter 9. And the other is, it's going to fall again, and then be rebuilt again, and then you're going to have, and then a restoration. So this is going to, this cycle is going to continue, even though Jeremiah's prophecy is going to come true. There's a lot more yet to come. So that's chapter 9. Well now we go to chapter 10 and 11 and in 10 and 11 we get like a repeat of 8 because now we're going to get Antiochus Epiphanes again but this time we're going to get a whole string of events that lead up to Antiochus Epiphanes, the one who did the abomination of desolations and then we're going to skip a couple thousand years and we're going to get the Antichrist. So that, that's what this prophecy is going to show. And it's going to give us a lot of history about the Greek Empire, and in particular the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. And it's uh, actually going to be amazing because it's such detail that God's going to give us. Now, we say it's amazing, but God says, my eye is on the sparrow, and I know every hair on your head. So he tells us that he's involved in the intricacies of life, but that tends to just kind of go over our head, doesn't it? But we're going to see the extent to which God is completely intermingled with history today. Now, this is history I don't know very well. When I talk about the Battle of Marathon or the Battle of Thermopylae, I've been there. I've read about it for years. I talk about the battle between Xerxes and and the uh, alliance between Athens and and, uh, Sparta. I've been to the Bay of Salamis. I've seen where that battle happened. I've been to the plains of Plataea. I've read about it. I've studied it for years. So it's something I actually have some familiarity with. When you talk about all this soap opera between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, this is all kind of new to me. So we'll be learning it together. But let's start in chapter 10, verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar. The message was true, but the appointed time was long, and he understood the message and had understanding of the vision. So, at the end of chapter 8, we saw nobody understood it. This time, it's going to be understood. So, perhaps that's one of the significant reasons why he had this whole thing again about Antiochus Epiphanes. This time, he understood it. So this third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Cyrus was already king of Persia before he defeated Babylon. But in the third year of having defeated Babylon, the Babylon was defeated in 539 B.C. So this would be 536 B.C. So 536 B.C., we're counting towards the days of the Greeks here. And with Cyrus being a God's servant that probably by this time has already said, go back to Jerusalem and repopulate it, rebuild the temple. 
Verse 2, In those days I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant food, no meat or wine came into my mouth. Nor did I anoint myself at all till three whole weeks were fulfilled. Now on the 24th day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose waist was girded with gold of Euphaz. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in color, and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. So he tells us specifically what day of the year this is, which is kind of interesting. You wonder why is that. It could be because the first month is the month in which Passover takes place. The 14th day of the first month is Passover. And then the Feast of Weeks is the week after that. And the day after, tell me if this is right, Matt. The day after the Feast of Passover, you count three weeks and then you have what we call Pentecost. It's 50 days later. Is that right? Yeah. This is the last day of unleavened bread? 24, well, but this is the 24th. This would have been three days after the... So you've got... Yeah, so this would have been... This would He would have been fasting and so forth during the period of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and ten days into this waiting period for the Pentecost. So this is kind of holiday season. Perhaps that's why he told us this. Because, of course, Passover is deliverance and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread is kind of righteousness, take leaven out and so forth. And then the Pentecost is the day where traditionally the Torah was given on Mount Sinai. And of course in the New Testament the law is written in our hearts because we get the Holy Spirit. So you've got this time of righteousness and delivery. And of course he's praying for understanding during this time of righteousness and delivery. Understanding about the delivery of Israel. So it kind of makes sense. So verse 7, Then I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision. But a great terror fell upon them, so they fled to hide themselves. And this is reminiscent of Paul, you know, when he was on the road, and he saw Jesus, the people with him did not see Jesus, although in his case they heard the voice. So apparently when you do these visions... Uh, God can kind of tune in who's who's in and who's out, almost like a cell phone. You know, you're either on the cell or you're not on the cell, or you're on that channel or not on that channel. So Daniel saw the vision, but everybody else felt it. And that's one of the things we're going to be seeing in chapter 10 is, if it's not complicated enough, that the idea that we are choosing and our choices are free and they're real and they make a impact on history at the same time God is orchestrating history and nothing happens that he doesn't prescribe if that's not amazing enough there's another layer in here of angels who are acting and their actions also impact this whole drama so it's actually a threefold paradox that we have here and we're going to see that in uh, spades so the spiritual realm is something that impacts us. That's going to become very clear as we go through this. Verse 8, Therefore I was left alone, because they ran, when I saw this vision, and no strength remained in me, for my vigor was turned to frailty in me, and I retained no strength. Yet I heard the sound of his words, and while I heard the sound of his words, I was in a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. So he basically 
passes out from fear. And we see this as a typical response to these angelic beings when they come in their glory. We see sometimes they don't seem to come in overwhelming glory, and sometimes they do. And when they do, people fall down. In verse 10, suddenly a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. While he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. And again, when we see these things like we saw in Revelation, John fell down like a dead man. He was touched and restored. So this is a pattern that occurs throughout the scripture. We cannot really even function in the presence of these angelic beings when they come in their glory. And these are the people that we're supposed to be preparing to judge. Isn't that crazy? That's what it means to be an overcomer and share his throne, is to be over people like this, that in our current state, we cannot even be in their presence without falling on our face and losing our strength. You see the magnitude of this? These are the guys, by the way, this guy like, these are the guys watching us to learn about God. Guys like this. It's hard to wrap your mind around, isn't it? But that's the magnitude of the importance of our life here on earth. Our life is something that is preparing us to rule people like this if we're overcomers. So verse 12, Then he said to me, Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision refers to many days yet to come. What is this about? So you got this angel here, and he says, Sorry I'm late. You started praying twenty-one days ago, and I was on my way, but I got deterred. Now, I don't know about all you guys, but... You've probably been sent for an errand somewhere and then got distracted and then gotten home and uh, had an excuse, haven't you? My wife's favorite one is she sent me to the store to get some milk and I came home with a new truck. (laughs) It was a 1968 solid steel General Motors truck. I had to take the seat out and put an old Suburban seat in there and it was Lee's first car. It was great. He had multiple wrecks, never got a dent. It was a tank. And so, you know, he's like, uh, you know, I was on my way. I was sent immediately. When you first started praying, I didn't want you to think, you know, we were delaying or anything. But, But on the way, the prince of the kingdom of Persia stopped me. And I couldn't get past him because I was by myself. Now, what that means is that there's these angels. The prince of the king of Persia is clearly an angelic being. And this angel here, he doesn't give us his name. He's clearly an angelic being. And we're going to see as we go here, they're fighting. And he got deterred because the prince of the king of Persia didn't want him to get through and give this message to Daniel. Well, there's more. We'll see more as we come. Now I've come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days. That was Daniel's prayer. I want to know about what's happening to our people. He had prayed about Jeremiah's prophecy. He was praying for his country. 
I want to uh, make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision refers to many days yet to come. So I'm telling you something way in the future. In this many days yet to come, we saw we're in 536, and Antiochus Epiphanes, who's going to be kind of the central character in this prophecy, died in 164. So we're headed, we're headed several hundred years in the future. And then, of course, we're going to look at the second Antiochus Epiphanes, the second fulfillment, the second abomination of desolations, and that's even yet to come in our time. So we're talking about several thousand years. So hundreds and then thousands of years. Many days yet to come. Verse 15 of chapter 10 of Daniel. When he had spoken such words to me, I turned my face toward the ground and became speechless. Once again, this being who is is overwhelming Daniel with both the content and the presence of his person. And this is the guy who's studying us to understand the wisdom of God, according to Ephesians. This is amazing. Verse 16, Suddenly one having the likeness of the sons of men touches my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke, saying to him who stood before me, My Lord, because of the vision, my sorrows have overwhelmed me, and I have retained no strength. For how can this servant of my Lord talk with you, my Lord? As for me, no strength remains in me now, nor is any breath left in me. Then again, the one having the likeness of a man touched me and strengthened me. So once again, we've got these angelic beings strengthening Daniel. There's a physical transfer of energy from the spiritual realm into the physical realm. So these angels are directly interacting with us and then are an integral part of this grand drama that we're playing. Verse 19, he said, O man greatly beloved, fear not. Peace be to you. Be strong. Yes, be strong. So these words of of strength. So part of it apparently has to do with Daniel's will and part of it has to do with an actual flow of energy. So when he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? And now I must return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I have gone forth, indeed the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. Now here, you know, these uh, chapters and verses are arbitrary. And apparently when the guy did chapter 10 and 11, he just didn't understand Daniel either because he cut 10 and 11 in the middle of a thought, basically. So we're going to go to the first verse of 11 with this. Then he has this parenthetical. No one upholds me against these, the prince of Greece and the prince of Persia, except Michael, your prince. Also in the first year of Darius the Mede, I, even I, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. So here I am, Daniel, you are on your face, and I strengthened you. You know what? I came in and strengthened Darius in the first year of the Persian Empire. Well, now, wait a minute. Is Darius a Jew? Now, Darius is not a Jew. And Darius is in Persia, right? And the princes of Persia clearly are demonic powers. So they're fighting with this angel, whoever this angel is. And this angel went and strengthened Darius. But it was Darius who gave the command, or Cyrus... Cyrus, Darius, Darius either is Cyrus or is under Cyrus. Cyrus is the one that gave the command to go rebuild the temple. So it makes perfect sense that, that it would be an angel of God that would be strengthening him in that way. And, and furthermore, Darius is the one who wanted Daniel to be delivered from the lion's den and elevated Daniel in his place. So you've got the prince of Persia who is a demonic power over Persia, but you still have the angel of God interceding in Persia to strengthen the king to be righteous. So there's a lot more going on in the world than what's in the newspaper. You agree with that? Matter of fact, most of what's in the newspaper actually isn't going on in the world. It's mostly fake, as we now know. So this angelic realm is going crazy. 
And he says, I'm going to go fight the prince of Persia, and, and after I get done fighting him, I'm going to start fighting the prince of Greece. Now he says here, no one upholds me except Michael, your prince. Now this is real fascinating. You could take this a couple ways. One is, this is a whining angel, the angel of whining. Nobody helps me except... I, I don't think that. I probably that's not the case. I think what he's probably saying is, the really the only one strong enough to get me over the hump is Michael. And now who is Michael, the prince? This gives us a little bit of an insight into this angelic realm. Lest you think, well, how do we know that's really angelic? I think this will put a bow on it to make sure we know that. So we look at Daniel 10.13. Daniel 10.13, But the prince of the kingdom of Persia with understood me 21 days, and behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. So Michael is a chief prince. He's not just a... This word prince just means... Ruler, it, it can mean keeper, it can mean uh, you know head. It, it just means somebody that's in charge, this, this word. So Michael's one of the top tier princes, so there's obviously a, 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 there is obviously a hierarchy within the angelic realm. And uh, some, sometimes called archangel, means, which arch means the top. So there's guys that are bosses and guys that are you know, chiefs and Indians within the angelic realm. So Michael's one of the most powerful guys, one at the top. And Daniel 12.1, which is just, a, just ahead of us a little bit, it says, At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. So Michael has a special role that is to oversee Israel. And so we see we've got demonic princes who have a special role to oversee governments and spheres of influence, geopolitical influence. And we also have angelic creatures that have a special realm of some sort over geopolitical and some that are apparently messengers. Apparently we also have some that guard children. Revelation 12.7 is really interesting about Michael. It says, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out. So there's all this fighting. And this is, of course, in the future, this, this time period. That's a revelation passage. So there's all this angelic fighting. Eventually, Michael and his angels are going to cast Satan, his angels, out from having access to heaven anymore. Right now, they can go into heaven. And as we've seen in Job, you know, Satan is out there, up there walking around in heaven with the other angels because that's where the trash-talking episode happens between God and, and Satan over Job. Okay? So that, that eventually will come to an end. And then Jude 1 verse 9 is really fascinating. It says, Yet Michael, the archangel, so Michael is one of the top guys, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. So even though Michael is really strong and can come and help this angel overcome the princes of Persia, Michael, when he's facing Satan directly, does not exercise authority over Satan, because remember, Satan, Lucifer, was the top of all the angels. And that was not good enough for him. He said, you know, now that I'm top of all the angels and the most beautiful and the most intelligent, then I, I now want your throne, God. I do not want to take orders from you anymore. I want my own kingdom. And that was the original fall of Satan. He took a third of the angels with him. And so that's the fight that's been going on ever since. And we play a really significant role in demonstrating that the babies, the ones that are newbies, that are far, far, far inferior in power, as we see in this passage, can, by dependence on God, 
dramatically outperform Satan. And he's going to put us in charge because of our dependence. He sent Jesus as a forerunner of that who did nothing of his own will and only depended on God even though he actually could be independent. And he's asking us to follow in those footsteps and say, follow us. And this is all, you can see all this in Psalm chapter 8 that says, We were made a little lower than the angels, but crowned with glory and honor because we were crowned to be the people who ruled the earth. But you can look at Hebrews chapter 2 and it says, quote Psalm 8 and then says, But now we do not see man crowned with glory and honor. Well, that's a giant understatement, isn't it? We are not really in harmony with one another and ruling the earth in perfect harmony with God and one another, are we? That's the design. That's not what's happening. But Hebrews 2 says, But what we do see is Jesus, who for the suffering of death was crowned with glory and honor. And he's paved the way for us to get back to where we were originally designed through the suffering of death, which is suffering the unjust persecution. Okay, So when we follow Jesus, we're actually putting ourselves in a position to join this angelic world essentially, and these people will be, these beings will be under us. That's, that's what this overcomer path of living a life of dependent servitude and totally following God is all about. It's kind of mind-boggling. So, verse 2 then, he says, Now I will tell you the truth. So he's kind of introduced himself in this angelic realm and so forth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia. So that's pretty specific, isn't it? you got Cyrus. You're going to have three more kings. And the fourth will be far richer than them all. By his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. So now this part I actually do know something about because this is Persia versus, versus Greece. So the three more kings are pretty well known in secular history. And one thing I've noticed about commentaries is when there's some overlap between the Bible and secular history as it's understood, they do a really good job of laying that out. And so I've got a commentary here I'm going to be referring to that does a really excellent job of this. So let's see, it was Canvases from 530 to 522. So Canvases here would be just um, half a dozen years away or so from taking over from Cyrus. Smyrtus for just a short time. And then Darius I. Darius I goes from 522 to 486. Now 522 to 486 is really significant because Darius is the guy that invaded Greece. And you know the Battle of Marathon. You know that because of the Marathon race, right? So the way the Marathon race came about is that when the Battle of Marathon was fought, one of the soldiers wanted to run back and beat the messenger. See, the Greeks had these guys that ran all over Greece that were like the Pony Express, except they ran. That's what they did for a living. But one of the foot soldiers wanted to do it and beat this guy whose profession was to tell the story. And he got back and said, we won and then died. So this Marathon race we run is in honor of somebody that was dumb enough to you know, kill himself to do somebody else's job. So I don't know what, no, I know what you think about that, but I guess it was courageous. So what Darius did is he came in and invaded Greece. He accomplished most of his purposes, and this is 490 B.C., 490 B.C. And when he got to Marathon, he was met by the Athenians. And according to our guide we had when we went there, she was telling us about this battle. She said they were normally, the Greeks were outnumbered like two to one or three to one or something like that. And they had armor and they had this fantastic fighting approach. 
where they would get in a phalanx and they had these spears they're like 12, 14 feet long and they would get like back one row, two rows, three rows, four rows and they would just do their spear like thrusting it forward and then if somebody gets tired they would just go to the back or whatever so they turned themselves into this armored vehicle with spears protruding out and they just just roll over anybody that they're with. Well, at Marathon, she told us, they were outnumbered 10 to 1. So it was really, really one of the greatest victories in, in all Athens. The way they did it is really interesting. It was one of the first times this tactic was used. They came up to the Persians who were landing on the shore that was vastly outnumbered. And what they did is they let the middle collapse. And so the Persians thought, ah, oh, we got them on the run. And then they had the flanks mash them right between them. So it was really a spectacular victory, really famous battle. Well, that happened to Darius. So what Darius did is he went home and started preparing for a real invasion. And a word started coming back to Greece that he was, he was piling up foodstuffs and, and mountains that blocked out the sun. And he was building ships. And so he was getting ready, okay, because you, you defied my honor. And, of course, if you're a king and you allow your prestige to be marred, you're in trouble. Because one goes, they can all go. So Darius started preparing for this massive invasion. But then he died. And he left it to his son. And this is the fourth king, who's far richer than them all. And this is Xerxes. Xerxes I. He's also known as Ahasuerus, who's the king in Esther. So Xerxes I picked up this campaign from his dad. He's going to finish it off. And I think there's something like 400 ships that he had. Nobody really knows these numbers, but I'm going, to, I'm going to take it from our guide because she's Greek, so she probably is exaggerating everything based on what I learned from the Greeks. But nobody really knows. So. so a million people invade. And, of course, these are all conscripts. They've got people from Arabia, people from wherever. They're from the Persian kingdom. And they've got 400 ships that are supplying these guys as, the, as they march in. The Greeks dallied around and didn't really pay much attention to them, of course, until right at the last minute. Then they very quickly came together, and there's an alliance that's formed between Sparta and Athens, which are the two dominant powers. They need a little time to get ready to resist the invasion, so 300 Spartans and 1,000 people from, I think it was Thebes. Anybody remember for sure? Yeah, 1,000 Thebans went to this pass that you have to go through right between the shore and the mountains. It's only about a quarter mile wide called Thermopylae, the Gates of Fire. And they made a stand there of the million people coming in from Persia and delayed them for about three days. It would have delayed them for a lot longer, but as was the tendency with the Greeks, a guy saw a way to make some money. So he sold the knowledge of how to come around the mountains and flank them from the back. And so that's how they ended up beginning defeated. And those 1,300 guys, the 300 Spartans and the 1,000 Thebans died. But they bought enough time for the Athenians to get ready for the invasion. The Athenians and the Spartans, but mainly the Athenians, to get ready for the invasion. And that's the famous uh, episode of Thermopylae. That's called the Greek Alamo by some people. And it was a pretty uh, well-known uh, battle. Just a little thing about that that I find, found really interesting. What they did is they did the same thing. They would let the Persian army start to invade and then fall back and then stop. And the, there were so many people in the Persian army, they would surge forward and they couldn't stop. So they would just butcher them. Just butcher them until they were about to get really tired and need some rest. And according to our guide, she estimated this 1,300 killed like 200,000 people. 
again, these numbers, who knows about the numbers, but there was a mass slaughter that took place there. So then the Persians ended up invading. This guy named Themistocles, who was one of the main Greek guys, he had sent a message saying, we're going to escape by night. And, ma- and making sure that the Persians intercepted this message. So they intercepted and said, we got them. So they brought their ships into the Bay of Salamis to keep the Greeks from escaping because they wanted to make sure they just mashed them all. And they did that at night. And when the sun rose, they look up and the Greek navy is in fighting formation. And they say, uh-oh, rot row because the Greek ships were, were little torpedoes, basically, triremes. They had the oars, they had the sail, but they're basically submarines, ramming submarines. And in a, in a closed quarters, they were vastly superior to these Persian ships that were more open sea type ships. So they saw they come open and the, the Greeks had tricked them. And they went in and they wiped out the Persian navy. And Xerxes had set himself up a throne up on the cliff to watch this final battle where the Greeks are finally dispatched with. And his father's honor is restored. And instead, he says, "Um, I can't uh, supply my army anymore, so we're toast, and so I'm heading back to Persia on the double. So the Persians started retreating. The Greeks realized, hey, if uh, we let these guys get away, they're just going to come back again. So they chased them. And again, still vastly outnumbered. But they met them on the plains of Plataea, wiped them out. Whoever, and of course these are all slaves or conscripts, so lots and lots of desertions. Who knows how many they killed. Everybody probably in the Persian army that could escape did. And that was it. That was the end of Persian dominance. Now we don't see actually Persia get conquered because that's 480 B.C. and and, uh, uh, Alexander is still going to be 150 years away. But this is really where Persian dominance ended. So now... That's the, that's the fourth king. And then verse 3, what's that? Yeah, yeah, and that's when Xerxes went back and, and to drown his sorrows picked a new queen. If you read in Esther and it says that he asked his uh, queen Vashti to come and do a strip tease for everybody, and she said, I'm not going to do that. I guess they were all drunk or something. And they passed this law that all women have to do what their husbands say and stuff. So you can see how his pride would be kind of wounded and he'd be pretty you know, susceptible to rejection at that point in time. That's why he got a new queen. And the book of Esther happens because he had his pride broken and now is protecting his pride. You know, at least I can get my women to do what I want me to do. Okay, so that's what happens there. All right, thank you for that. And then verse 3, see world geopolitics and relationships. They're in, indistinguishable. They always go together. So verse 3, Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great domination and do according to his will. And when he has arisen, his kingdom will be, shall be broken up and divided towards the four winds of heaven, but not among his posterity, nor among according to his dominion with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be uprooted even for others besides these. So this is Alexander the Great now. So we, we skip forward 150 years because again what, we're, what this prophecy is doing is it's just showing us the string of events that's going to give us the abomination of desolation. And this apparently was something that Daniel said okay now I get it. So you had a mighty king that arises and Alexander the Great came along and he, he rolled up the world in pretty short order. As a matter of fact by um, 331 331 B.C. he had conquered the whole world. He was 25 years old. I think it took him about six years to conquer the whole Persian Empire. So when we saw in uh, chapter 8, I think it was, the goat 
that's running across the face of the earth and his his feet aren't even touching the ground and nothing can withstand him, that's Alexander the Great. He just kind of rolls it all up. He's 25, he's king of the world, he's conquered everything he's set out to do, set out to subjugate, and eight years later he's dead. He died when he's 33 of a sickness. So after he died, uh, his generals took over, split up the kingdom. So you had the four points of the compass, they split it up. And you don't hear too much about the Greece and Macedonia. They were the weaker of the kingdoms, and they got, they got absorbed by Rome fairly quickly. But now most of the rest of this that we're going to get in chapter 11 is all about the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. So I'm going to go through this with you next week when we get this stuff because I think it's worthwhile knowing the extent to which God can tell us if he chooses to do so, the intricacies of like who's going to win the elections and what that's going to be and who's going to dominate the world and geopolitics and who's going to be in control and that sort of thing of of who is actually in control. The key thing here is God's actually always in control. And remember, Daniel is in a time here where his country has been invaded. They're just now starting to go back to rebuild the temple. And the question he has is, do you still have the promises for Israel? Israel in mind, and are they going to be fulfilled? And God's telling us here, yes, they are, but probably not the way you would choose it. It's not going to be a simple a line between two points. It's going to be a cycle. Things are going to get worse. You know, who's going to dominate you is going to change. Right now, the holy land, the glorious land, the beautiful land is under Persia. It's then going to go under the Greeks because the Ptolemies had it first. Then we're going to see as we go through, it switches to the Seleucids. And then this Antiochus IV, the Seleucid king, is going to do the abomination of desolations. And then the 69 weeks is going to end. And then you're going to have this time of the Gentiles that we're in right now. And then the 70th week is going to happen. And the Antiochus event is going to take place again. And you're going to have another abomination of desolations. But that abominator is going to have the same end as Antiochus IV did. He's going to die not at the hands of a man. We know Antiochus IV died of some disease or something. Uh, we know the Antichrist is going to be thrown straight into the lake of fire by the hands of God. So, God's in control. The angelic realm is in full swing. We are part of the drama. God has a plan. He's written the script. So, what remains? Well, what remains is whether we're going to play our part or not. Now, remember, God can always use a rock in our place, right? It will happen. The question is, will we take the opportunity to play our role? And if we do, then we're going to end up in charge of this world. That is the reward of the overcomer. But it's not going to be in charge like these guys are in charge. These guys are in charge the way Satan wants to be in charge, which is, I will dominate you and you will do my will. No, no, no. The way God is training us to be in charge is, I will serve you because I am doing the will of God. It's exactly the opposite of Satan. And when we serve one another in practical ways, in everyday ways, in our job, in our homes, raising our children, in the church, with one another, in our community, even in geopolitics as we get involved in voting or in advocating for sound policies, all those things, maybe, maybe representing our country in the military, all those things that we're doing, if we do it with an attitude of, I am serving God by serving you, then we are bringing God's kingdom to earth in this corrupt era. 
And what God wants to do is reward his faithful witnesses that do not fear death with taking this massively violent, dysfunctional world that we're going to see here in spades. And like nothing new under the sun, right? It's going on today still. And he's going to bring it into perfect harmony because his servant kings are going to make it that way. Romans 8 tells us the whole world can't wait. Even all creation is saying, put it back like it's supposed to be. Well, that's what's in our future. And if he predicted this degree to Daniel, and we've already seen all this happen, all the more to believe with total certainty that what he's predicted in our future is going to happen. God, thank you for your sovereignty and that you have determined all things and all things will be according to your will. God, thank you for giving us an amazing role in that if we're willing to play it. Help us learn to be faithful witnesses in whatever you've given us to do. Not fear rejection, not fear death. And know that what you have in store for us is beyond our capability to comprehend. Help us believe you. Help us trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.